Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson on manoeuvres yet again, and whether there is any case for the UK to stay in the EU Customs Union. I'm delighted to be joined by our political correspondent, Laura Hughes, leader writer Alan Beatty, Stephen Booth from the Open Europe Think Tank, and Andrew Jimson, who's a biographer of Boris Johnson and contributing editor at Conservative Home. Thank you all for joining, and if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to receive it on your phone, tablet or computer every Saturday morning. Boris Johnson managed to put himself back in the headlines this week, demanding that Theresa May stump up an extra £5 billion for the NHS. He made this case in the Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, which curiously made its way onto the front page of that day's Times newspaper. Many of his Cabinet colleagues are somewhat disgruntled at the Foreign Secretary's behaviour straying outside of his brief, while MPs are wondering if he's on leadership manoeuvres once again. Laura Hughes, let's begin with what Boris was up to. He was demanding money for the NHS, not for the first time. No, it's not the first time and that's probably why he was demanding money for the NHS. He famously made that claim during the referendum campaign that we would get all this money back when we leave the EU and that it could be put into the NHS. And last week he went out and around a hospital with Jeremy Hunt where he says he was moved by the concern amongst nurses and doctors over the lack of funding. What was interesting this week is that we knew about the cabinet discussion before it actually happened. It was clearly briefed by some friends of Boris Johnson to the Sunday Times to put out this idea that he would go into cabinet and fight for this money. Why is he doing it? Well, Obviously, he made this campaign. I think there is a bit of ego there and he doesn't want to look like the man who made this promise and failed to deliver it. And clearly, he wanted to get some support ahead of cabinet. It makes him look good and strong. But in reality, no one around the cabinet table is saying that more money shouldn't go to the NHS. And they were really quite aggrieved at the fact that he had pre-briefed a disagreement that hadn't happened yet ahead of the meeting happening in the first place. It wasn't seen very favourably by his cabinet colleagues. No, there were lots of ministers who I understand intervened and sort of said, yes, we agree with what the Foreign Secretary is saying, but this is not the way to do it. These discussions should be held in private. I think Jeremy Hunt, the Health Secretary, was particularly aggrieved since he's long been asking for more money for the NHS. But, you know, it's quite hard to find these things down the back of a sofa. Yeah, I understand from friends of Jeremy Hunt that he wasn't particularly happy about Boris's intervention. Of course, he wants more money, but pre-briefing it ahead of this and making it about Brexit actually just goes to show that the splits within cabinet and the splits within the country. I think he feels as though some cabinet colleagues have moved on and they're all trying to move forward together. And when Boris comes out with these things, it just reminds everyone actually how split the cabinet is. So Andrew Jimson, um, as a biographer of Boris, you probably understand his psyche and motivations better than most, if not fully. I think no one ever understands the inside workings of Boris, but it's quite clear to see what's going on here. He was the face of the Brexit campaign. And with that bus that will probably be on his tombstone saying we have... 350 million, let's spend it on the NHS. And he knows that's where his political legacy is going to lie. I think he's increasingly concerned that money isn't going to come about. No one has ever understood Boris better, I think, than Martin Hammond, 
very distinguished classicist, translator of Thucydides and Marcus Aurelius, and Boris's housemaster at Eton. And Hammond tried to turn him into a professional classicist by getting him to work properly. And Boris was basically bone idle. He was compared at this cabinet by one minister, Laura probably knows which one, said he was chuntering like a recalcitrant schoolboy. And that reminded me of the report that Hammond wrote on Boris when Boris was only 17 years old and the key sentence is I think he honestly believes that it is churlish of us not to regard him as an exception one who should be free of the network of obligation which binds everyone else and there he was flouting cabinet responsibility in an absolutely outrageous way not just leaking the proceedings afterwards but uh, leaking in advance what he intended to do it was outrageous behavior the details of it were all wrong but the basic message was entirely right and just because because the details were so objectionable, the message has got through. It's obviously worth saying that comes from your excellent biography of <laughs> Boris, that all our listeners should go out. Indeed. But yeah. I think this comes to this point about Boris is always on manoeuvres. You know, I don't know how many times we've sat around this table talking about it because he's always aspired for a greater job. When he was mayor of London, he eyed getting yeah. back on the national stage. When he was a backbench Conservative MP, he was eyeing a move into the shadow cabinet. So it's not surprising he feels he has unfinished business and he's clearly seizing on Mrs May's instability and lack of authority to push himself forward against those boundaries that you know normal people would see. But as you said, Andrew, he doesn't. Yes, and he's one of the very few big figures in the cabinet who can make people feel good about either being conservative or at least voting conservative. And he doesn't want that to be forgotten because the Foreign Office is, is a gilded cage where you go after all sorts of places and do things which don't make any news at all. So he has to keep himself in the public eye, and he's done it rather well. I think Philip Hammond sort of summarised, Laura, how people feel about this when he said, Boris is the Foreign Secretary. It's a gentle reminder of what his job is and what he's supposed to do. But the fact is, Boris can't help but get involved in domestic matters. He can't help but get involved in Brexit, because as Andrew said, he sees himself as a voice for certain conservatism, which he calls Merry England conservatism, which is very upbeat and joyful and saying, Britain can be great, make Britain great again. That's what he wants to do. It's very hard to do that when you on diplomatic missions around the world. Yeah, as one Tory, senior Tory said to me, maybe Theresa should just send him into a war zone. That might keep some peace around the cabinet table. I also think Boris just like the sound of his own voice and he's found himself in a very frustrating position where he's not in charge of the domestic agenda or Brexit policy. And actually, he managed to find a way of dominating the Tory party conference with his big article in the Telegraph on his views on Brexit. And now he seems to be dominating the domestic agenda. Why is he doing this? I think he just quite likes some of the attention, actually. He certainly is incredibly energetic and I I think he misses not writing his column, actually, which for a lot of us would be a relief not to have to churn out a column every week. But that gave him a direct sort of link with the wider world, which he, as Foreign Secretary, you don't have. I think there's also a sense of frustration, Andrew, that, you know, people who I know have spoken to Boris recently feel that he's sort of trapped in a way because he's in this position. He doesn't think there is much mojo behind the May government, as I think most people do. But at the same time, he knows he can't walk out and quit because in some circumstances, you could have said with what happened this week, he could have done a Michael Heseltine and said, right... I'm putting this Gortner down, put more money for the NHS, or I'm walking. Now, if he'd done that, it probably would have created a civil war in the Conservative Party this week, but it would have staked out his position. He ultimately knows that his window for jumping through to get the leadership is closing all the time. All this talk about the next generation of Conservative MPs makes it less and less likely that the moment will come for Boris. He can't be Heseltine. I mean, Heseltine paved the way for John Major. He's got, actually, oddly enough, although I don't really like analogies between Boris and Churchill. He's got to be Churchill after Churchill rejoined the government in 1939 when Churchill became extremely loyal to Chamberlain 
And when it all went wrong in Norway, Churchill was there in the Commons, being warned by Lloyd George not to turn himself into an air raid shelter for for Neville Chamberlain, but showing the party that actually, when it counted, he was loyal and not divisive. And in my opinion, that's what Boris should start doing, at least when we get into the decline and fall of the May administration. Perhaps we're not quite into that yet. Yes, Law, he sort of seems to have skipped the loyal part. He was at the beginning (laughs) and has just gone straight into the creating issue. But if Theresa May did resign or was kicked out, would Boris be the obvious person to step into her shoes? don't think so and actually if you look at what happened in the cabinet he sort of fluffed it a bit and was put down quite strongly by the likes of Amber Rudd who actually emerged best I thought from that meeting and was put down by Jeremy Hunt and David Gork and others had their little go at Boris Johnson I don't think so it's interesting to see what Michael Gove is doing actually and I think Michael Gove should be talked about when we discuss Boris and what he did this week because actually Michael Gove was stood next to Boris and that big sign on that big bus and yet in cabinet he didn't really back the foreign secretary he let Boris take all the heat really and people I've been speaking to close to Gove say he's actually, he's not Boris's guy at the moment. He's quite happy to separate himself and is potentially waiting for his opportunity to step into that leadership position. There's a little bit of tussling, I think, still going on between those two. I think that's absolutely true. This whole idea of the Boris-Gove union back together again after the events the summer of 2016 is very much over-egged. I think Michael Gove's people like to talk that up. A lot of Remainers in the government like to talk that up. But Boris's people, friends of Boris, if you like, are very keen to say, you know, there's actually some key difference and if you look on Brexit Andrew you know, Michael Gove is much more willing to accept compromises in terms of the transition agreement in terms of the NZ where Boris is sticking to that original vote leave vision of having a clean break with the EU. The person I've noticed talking very generously and with every sign of conviction about Boris not just in the last few days but fairly recently is Jacob Rees-Mogg and he of course now is the chair of the leave group within the parliamentary conservative party and they at the moment are sticking with May but they're sticking with May on condition that she does what they regard as a proper Brexit and the crack or the break could come if they lose faith in May and decide they need someone who is actually just going to negotiate much more much harder in Brussels and Boris then could might be their man. And that's actually interesting. This week we saw a select committee turn between David Davis and Jacob Rees-Mogg, which was incredibly testy because the pair of them didn't really agree on much because David Davis was reiterating the government's transition position of a standstill on Brexit Day, the day we leave, and Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, aren't you going to turn us into a vassal state? And David Davis, in his usual manner, sort of said, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. But that does suggest, Law, there are going to be some real problems ahead. And that Boris view in Parliament is going to be a very influential presser force on the Prime Minister. Yes, and it will. And actually, I think David Davis and Liam Fox and Michael Gove, big Brexiteers, are stuck in a sense, because they're actually in the positions where they're seeing all the details and scratching their heads going, oh my Christ, how are we going to get this through? Michael Gove in particular, Mr Brexiteer, he's now got the thorny issue of dealing with the fisheries, agricultural policy post-Brexit. I think he's realised it's really very complicated and perhaps that's why he's toning it down a little bit. David Davis also has his hands tied. Boris doesn't. Foreign policy, yes, it doesn't really cross with Brexit. He is in a position where he can speak out on it with strength and with conviction in a way that others can't. And that's really what suits him, Andrew, you know, going back to your point about not seeing the usual boundaries, you know, when Boris became Foreign Secretary, a lot of people said, how on earth is he going to cope with collective responsibility? And I think the answer we've seen is not particularly well. Yes, and he's never been one to worry about practical difficulties, which would daunt most of us. He just says, oh, where there's a will, there's a way. And that, I think, will be much more his attitude towards Brexit than these people who are sort of conscientious and conscientious technicians of government. He's not a conscientious technician. He leaves that to other people. He's the front man. 
one who can actually tell us what direction we're going in. I still think it's rather unlikely that he'll become leader, but because he's such a big figure, he can't be ruled out. I, I often find myself, not, on, not in this company, driven into the position of defending Boris more than I really wish to. I think he has many grievous faults, but there's nevertheless kind of star quality there as well, and an ability to reach the wider public, which very few people on either side of the House of Commons have at the moment. Which is why Theresa May won't get rid of him. She just yeah. knows he can't. He's just too popular, too good for the Tory brand in some ways. And if you look at the sort of episodes we've seen him go through and the risks he's taken and how much really he's pushed the boundaries, and in normal times, and a normal Prime Minister would have sacked him a very long time ago. And you can see, Andrew, the situation of Theresa May hangs on until Brexit is done and everyone will be pretty sick of themselves by that point because we'll have gone through this very arduous process of compromise and negotiation but we might get over the line at that point she steps aside and you could see both the Conservative Party and the country just wanting someone with a bit of pizzazz a bit of upbeatness because you know everyone you know Brexit is still being managed like a problem by much of the government whereas Boris sees it as this great opportunity to take Britain forward so at that moment if he's still broadly within favour you could see him on for him to come in and then really say you know shake off all these problems and look to our bright sunlit uplands. Yes and the there are a great many able people, I think, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, including people who've only just got into Parliament, like the much sort of admired Kemi Badenoch. But none of those people has any ministerial experience, and he does now have a bit. So that will put him in a favourable position compared to a lot of the other talented people who might actually be very good when they were brought before the British public, but of whom the British public has not yet heard. And finally, Laura, do you think there's any chance if Brexit does go arise somehow, he becomes the Brexit martyr, that he walks out of the cabinet saying there are too many compromises. Mrs May, I'm sorry you're not doing it right. I'm leaving. Just think he might disappear. I think there might be a scuffle, but I think actually he'd then have to sort of gulp back to the back benches. And I don't know if he'd be willing to do that. And it was someone remarked this week that Boris does risk becoming the David Miliband of the Conservative Party, the constant almost man who almost got there but never quite made it. Back in January 2017, Theresa May delivered her infamous Lancaster House speech and said that Brexit meant leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. Not everyone in her government agreed with her and since her botched election gamble last June, the door of remaining in the customs union has remained ajar. This week, the CBI called for the UK to do just that, while others still think it would be a misstep and would break off those potential trading opportunities after the UK has left the EU. Alan Beatty, can you begin by explaining exactly what the customs union is. It's something that's banded around a lot. I'm sure a lot of listeners aren't quite sure what it even means. At its basic, it's uh, a customs union is an arrangement by countries whereby they have a common external tariff. So they decide between them that they're going to charge the same import duties on goods um, from outside the union. There aren't actually very many of them in reality. <laughs> the EU is one of them. Mercosur in South America is another one. Part of the reason that there aren't many is because that obviously quite seriously constrains the countries within those customs unions because they can't separately do their own deals with external currencies about uh, tariffs. So essentially, you know, a country decide to join a customs union if they think that the benefits from being part of whatever internal market the customs union creates outweigh the benefits of being able to have an independent trade policy. 
So for the UK, obviously, its trade policy has been handled by the EEC and then the EU for the past four decades or so. So if we were to remain in the customs union, it would essentially be some form of continuity with our trade policy as it stands with regards to goods. Uh, To some extent, that's true. I mean, if you really wanted to kind of maintain the goods trade regime as it currently is, you'd also need to add in an awful lot of stuff, which in many cases is more important than tariffs, which is the regulations that uh, determine whether things um, have to be checked, whether they go across the border, particularly on things like food and drink and so forth, you know, plant hygiene and food hygiene. So those two together, uh, the customs union and all the regulations that come along with having a goods border are the two things which together, yes, you'd need to sort of carry on with those as they are if you wanted basically to maintain the goods trading arrangements as they currently are. So Stephen Booth, your think tank Open Europe, authored an excellent and interesting paper on why the UK should leave and made the case for leaving the customs union here. Since Alan just said that if we want to maintain those trading links with Europe, we've got to kind of stay close to that. Why do you think that we should break with the customs union? Well, I think to take a step back, I think, as Alan said, if you want to make, maintain the status quo, not simply maintain a trading relationship, you have to keep things... A close trading relationship. Yeah. Well, I think what Alan was talking about was trying to maintain the status quo, in effect. And once you start trying to do that, it's not simply about the customs union. It's actually more about, and arguably more important, as the, the regulatory issues surrounding the single market. So I think from a sort of a Brexiteer point of view, it's a thin end of the wedge. Once you start saying, well, we actually want to keep it the same because of the customs union, then you start looking at the sing- effectively saying, well, we need to stay in the single market at which point you haven't left the EU. And I think from a political point of view, that's why making that's why staying in the customs union is a very difficult road to start on for the government, partly because of the numbers in Parliament, but also in terms of respecting the referendum result. I think from a practical point of view, there are lots of problems with it too. There is no precedent for a customs union outside of the, the EU, which does completely replicate what we have now. Turkey has a customs union with the EU, but there are still are some degree of, of border checks with the EU. And the big downside is that effectively it's an asymmetric relationship relationship under which the EU can sell access to Turkey's markets. Anytime the EU does a trade deal with a third country, those goods can access the Turkish market tariff-free via the EU, but Turkey doesn't necessarily get the reciprocal access to that market in return. So you're hugely dependent on the EU and the third country cutting you a favour in terms of future trade policy. And I think for the UK, having voted to leave and on the path to less political integration with the EU, I think that's probably an unacceptable loss of sovereignty. That might be the case, but is it not that if we do leave the customs union and who knows what kind of agreement might replace it, that you are going to introduce some problems? So one of the things that obviously comes to mind is the Irish border question. Another one is manufacturing's European-wide supply chains. And because all these questions have not really had much of an airing in the public debate, just been accepted for the reasons you said, we're leaving the EU, therefore we need to leave the customs union. But there are going to be some big trade-offs involved with that. Yes, that's true. And clearly leaving the customs union will create some cost. It's very hard to see how it won't introduce some greater friction on trade. And I think that it is right that we debate well, how closely aligned we want our manufacturing sectors to stay with the EU. And I think there's a strong argument to say we should try to remain closely aligned on lots of issues such as regulation and so on, which I think would also help to try and resolve issues around some of the issues around the Irish border, although that is very complicated. And I think, just, again, coming back to the Irish border issue, customs alone aren't, isn't the only problem. It's not simply about collecting tariff duties on the border. As, as Alan said, it's about the regulatory issues. So any solution to the Irish border is going to involve looking at both of those sides of the coin. Sort of A lot of the customs issues actually are probably easier to do away from the border. It's quite easy to set up a database for how have you paid your tariffs or not. It's much more complicated to check rules of origin and checks the regulatory requirements. So we're going to need some form of creative thinking there in any case. Well, Alan, I think we know that creative thinking is not necessarily the thing the EU does. It tends to like to stick to its rules and its regulations about how the block operates. 
Yeah, but you see, one of the reasons that the EU does that is because the EU knows that, frankly, no matter what the UK does, even if the UK throws off EU regulations and strikes out on its own, in reality, many UK companies will simply carry on following EU regulations. Okay, this is a phenomenon known as the Brussels effect. It's observable around the world. You even have American companies dealing, you know, only with other American customers, for example, who remain under EU, who ensure they comply with EU chemicals regulation, just because <laughs> the extent of global supply chains means they actually save you money if you only comply with one set of regulations, and that set of regulations being usually the toughest is often the EU. So in reality, I think even if you thought you could you could break off and find different sets of regulations that would help, in reality, I think actually industries would just adhere to the old ones. If you look at what a whole succession of industries now, particularly the motor industry, the chemicals industry and so on, have told parliamentary committees, having 10 years ago said, oh, we don't like these new EU chemicals regulations, they're too invasive, they're too restrictive and so forth. Now they're actually desperate to stay under them simply because of the enormous hassle of having to comply if they leave. So to be honest with you, I think it's a bit of a false opposition to say EU regulations are terrible and it's worth leaving and coming up with our own, because in reality, EU regulations are going to hold a lot of sway in any case. Well, I think there's a lot of truth in what Alan says about businesses' views of the status quo at the moment. But clearly here we're trying to design a framework which is going to last 5, 10, 15, 20 and more years. And there may be situations in the future in which, as Alan said, businesses at the time were very much opposed to the regulatory direction the EU was going in. And there may be cases in the future where we are faced with similar problems. And do we want to be in a position where, as a result of the agreement we sign at the moment, we are duty-bound to take those regulations on? Or do we want more flexibility? I think that's the trade-off we need to face. And we have to recognise that if we want that flexibility and if we want to diverge in the future that is going to come with consequences in terms of our market access with the EU but I think having once taken the decision to exclude ourselves from the councils of Europe in terms of the European Parliament votes in the European Council it's very difficult for a future British government to bind itself so closely to rules with which we do not know what they will look like so I think it's quite a difficult thing to say that we would basically sign a blank check. And Alan I guess that's the pressure for Theresa May's government here that you've got people like Liam Fox the International Trade Secretary who want that flexibility flexibility to potentially diverge in the future, even if they don't want to now. And if you maintain some part of the status quo, then that's essentially going to bind the hands. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. But the reality remains that Brexiters who are gung-ho for leaving haven't actually managed to point out any kind of regulation that they'd like to change. They haven't actually found any great groundswell of support within businesses for changing regulations. And the reality is that regulations are dynamic. I mean, they continue to evolve. They don't remain the same. What, it's not you know, a fixed set of regs that the EU passes in one year and then never changes. It tends to be a system which is continually updated. So in reality, there is a dynamic system already. The simple fact is that it doesn't matter what the UK government does. Okay? It doesn't matter what the UK government does. The reality is EU regulations will still be governing large swathes of the UK economy. I don't disagree with that. I think that's true. I think the issue will be to come up with architecture in which you can get the EU to agree that your regulations are equivalent to theirs or are the same as theirs to allow that trade to continue. And if in cases where the UK for future generations decide to change regulatory standards or rules, what are the consequences of that? And can you manage that in a, in a controlled way rather than one that breaks down the whole agreement? That's clearly the challenge of a new deal. And Stephen, I think this also comes this sort of fundamental point about Brexit. We still don't really know where we're heading in terms of where those regulations lie. Now, I reference the Lancaster House speech where Mrs May essentially said we're going to have a clean break with the EU. But there's still this internal debate going on in the Cabinet about, you know, the Philip Hammonds who wants to start essentially where we are and then stick to that. And then the Boris Johnsons who want to essentially start with a blank sheet of paper and say everything's up grab. And that distance is the real question we're talking about here, is how close will Britain hug the EU after it leaves? And, you know, there might be some equivalence mechanism that you talked about, but we're not really having that debate because the customs 
Union thing comes back to that. Do we want, you know, to incur the costs of moving away from that, but where do the opportunities lie and vice versa? No, that's right. But I think, I mean, the Florence speech did provide a slightly more nuanced framework to think about these things. She talked about three areas, um, areas which are completely outside of the scope of the potential agreement, which is fairly easy, areas in which we want to try and achieve the same objective, but by different means. So some degree of divergence, but agreeing to disagree about how you do that. And areas where we want to remain closely aligned, effectively do the same things by the same means. And so in terms of regulatory associations, staying very close. And I think for the sort of complex supply chain manufacturing industries, where clearly being a member of the single market for so many years has built up integrated supply chains. I think the UK should try to do as much to minimise the risk to that as possible. That means close customs cooperation, close regulatory cooperation in those issues. But there are going to be other areas where I think, A, because the EU actually can't agree a collective position in many areas such as some services, for example, there probably are going to have to be different types of regulatory approaches on either side of the channel. So I think it, it isn't a black or white issue. And I think, I mean, look at Canada, for example, which is has a very close association with the United States customs union through the free trade agreement NAFTA it manages to be part of integrated supply chains for the auto industry for example this is not a completely black or white issue yes coming out of completely friction free trade with customs will impose some costs but those costs can be minimized I think the area where again that's the most complicated is clearly the island of Ireland but again that's not simply about customs that's actually the more complex issues there are regulatory and we need to start being more clearly defining what the issues really are around say agriculture for example or specific industries where a solution might be possible to find Alan? The reality is that any attempt to harmonise or to do recognition of other countries' regulations basically doesn't exist anywhere else, in anywhere in the world ever. The it Swiss haven't. The closest one is one between Australia and New Zealand. Well, the Swiss in do recognise each other's regs. However, there are big exceptions to that and they can be suspended and indeed unilaterally revoked. The EU has a, a series of very minimal agreements with other countries, but that's merely about testing. It's not actually about recognising other countries' regulations. So if you want to replicate, and again, we're, we're, we're talking, as Stephen correctly says, we're talking here about the regs that go alongside the customs union, or that go alongside the zero tariffs from a customs union. If you want some system of recognition, you basically get the EU to agree something that neither it nor other country has ever done in the modern economy. As Stephen just said, though, Alan, isn't there some sort of lessons to be learned from the Swiss relationship with the EU? So Switzerland is not a big manufacturing economy. I think it is correct to say Switzerland has literally never manufactured a car in its history. I'm sure lots of irate Swiss people will write in with, with corrections for that. So Switzerland does have a, a big high and manufacturing industry. However, it's not high-speed, just-in-time stuff like cars and aerospace that the UK does. It tends to be much slower stuff like speciality chemicals and so forth. So it doesn't have a, you know, a model that involves shuttling things quickly back and forth across the border, which the UK does. You know, There's a huge volume of goods that go into and out of ports like Dover and Holyhead. You don't need to introduce many frictions into those until you're quite seriously disrupting supply chains and you'll have lorries backed up for 20 miles. And Norway, I'm afraid, is similar. The Swiss model and, and the Norwegian model don't actually help very much for a country like the UK, which is involved and drawn into the kind of supply chains that those countries are not. And, and finally, Stephen, just, I want to just quickly say, you know, a lot of what you're talking about here is Michel Barnier has been so clear over and over again. No bespoke deals is his favourite phrase we keep hearing. A lot of what you're kind of talking about in this kind of new relationship does sound a bit sort of cherry picking. Is that going to happen? Well, Michel Barnier hasn't yet got a mandate for the second phase of, of negotiations. So what he says about that now is, is slightly academic. And we've been plenty of EU leaders talking about we are going to end up with something in between Norway and the traditional 
free trade agreement and ultimately it's the leaders who will give Michelle Barnier the mandate in, in March to negotiate something and I do think we'll end up with something with which picks elements of the various approaches that are out there. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Laura, Alan, Stephen and Andrew for joining us. If you'd like to hear even more about where the Brexit negotiations are heading, don't forget to look up for our Brexit Unspun podcast which is available through all the usual apps. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Martin Starber. So until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.